0: Yes, we are extremely grateful for our partnership with the Peninsula Biblical Counseling Ministries and all the work that God is doing both in and through Brother Dallas and Sister Janie. And so please remember to pray for them. Also glad to have our families with us, the, the elementary kids and the middle schoolers and high, schools, high schoolers with us this morning as we dive into our second in a five-part series on the church. So my name is Steve Lindenmeyer. I'm one of the pastors here, and I get a chance to continue on in this series. As we look at the church, what is the church? Why is it important? What is its structure? And should I be committed to it? Those are some of the questions we're asking as we dive into this series through God's Word and talking about not this physical structure of the church building, but the people of Christ gathered together as the body of Christ and His church. So this morning we're going to be looking at a passage that may be familiar to you, although we're going to look at it with a different perspective. So go ahead and turn your Bibles to Ephesians 5. We're going to be in Ephesians 5, looking at verses 22 through 32. There's a Bible for you uh, in the pew racks, and that will be on page 919, if you're looking in our uh, pew Bibles there in front of you. Ephesians 5, verses 22 through 32. Well, I don't know about you, but I love weddings. Has anybody been to a good wedding recently? Like weddings are just, all right, we got a high five. It might have been your own wedding. I love that. Somebody's been to a good wedding recently. It might have been their own wedding. I love weddings because of all the fanfare, all the excitement, all the anticipation. You get to get dressed up. You get to see a beautiful bride walk down the aisle. You get to see the groom standing in front, all smiles. You get to celebrate a life to come when a husband and wife are going to live together and all that God is going to do in their lives and through their lives. Aren't weddings fun? And then you get to go party afterwards and dance and all the fun stuff that goes with a wedding. Weddings are super fun. I love weddings. But after reading and studying the passage that we're going to look at this morning, I love weddings even more. Because we're going to see in this passage a perspective on a wedding, and a perspective on the relationship between a husband and wife that is far greater than maybe you've ever seen before. Because in this passage, Paul is writing to us about the relationship between husbands and wives and a wedding that takes place, but he's pointing us to something better. He's pointing us to something more magnificent. He's pointing us to something more glorious. And that's the relationship between Christ and his bride. And we, as the church, are the bride of Christ. And Paul's going to call this a profound mystery. That we, the church, are the bride of Christ, and Jesus is our bridegroom. And I believe, if you'll follow with me this morning, that not only will this reality change the way that you think about yourself, it will change the way that you think about Jesus, and it will change the way that you think about his church. So follow with me in Ephesians 5. We're going to be looking, starting at verse 22 and reading 11 verses together. Now, in order to give you the right perspective, I'm going to go ahead and read all 11 verses. And then I'm going to camp out on the last verse just for a moment before jumping back to the beginning. Can you follow me with that? Ephesians 5, starting in verse 22. This is the Word of God. Wives... Therefore, a man will leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church, a profound mystery that Paul is laying out in front of us, that we might see a new perspective not only on a wedding ceremony, but on the relationship between a husband and a wife. As we begin to look at this profound mystery together, let us pray. Father, you are glorious and you are beautiful. And God, we are the bride of Christ. Father, help us to see more clearly what that means for us this morning. Holy Spirit, would you come and enlighten us as we open your word, that your word would transform our thinking, which would transform our, our actions and our lives. So God, have your way in this service this morning as we continue to worship through your word. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. See, this might be a familiar passage to you because it's ta- you, you hear it often at a wedding ceremony. Ephesians 5, the roles between wives and husbands. I typically read this at every wedding ceremony that I have an opportunity to officiate. But Paul wants to take us into a deeper sphere of understanding this passage this morning as we look at what it means to be the bride of Christ. So with that in mind, I want to start with the end verse that we read and then work back up to the top here in just a minute. Verse 32 says this, the mystery is profound and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Paul is going to teach us a mystery. Now, when the New Testament uses this word mystery, which it does often, it even was used earlier in the book of Ephesians, the word mystery here is not something that we can't understand or something that is obscure or something that's hidden away, away from our ability to comprehend. It's not like a murder mystery where we're trying to figure out who did it. A mystery in the New Testament is a hidden truth that now God is revealing in the gospel for our understanding and for our enjoyment. This mystery is now being revealed of the relationship between a husband and wife and how it is to reflect and foreshadow the relationship between Christ and his church. Do you see how Paul describes the mystery here? He calls it a what kind of mystery? Come on, help me out. Thank you. It's a profound mystery. It's not just a a simple mystery, it's a profound mystery. And if you look at the Greek word for profound, It's the word megas, where we get our word mega. It means exceedingly great or large. What Paul is going to reveal to us this morning is this exceedingly great mystery. It's a mega mystery, so to speak. He needs to be contemplated, or it needs, this truth needs to be contemplated and understood and delighted in. As we look back at this passage from verses 22 through 32, we're gonna see an exceedingly great and profound mystery. And I believe we'll walk away with a greater understanding of our relationship with Christ. You see the picture here. It's a picture, the relationship that you have with your spouse, a wedding ceremony that you may participate in. It's a picture, it's a model, it's a parallel, it's a foreshadowing of something greater. And that's our relationship with the church. Well, when Paul says this metaphor refers to Christ and the church, who is Paul talking about? Who is the church? Well, if you did a little study and looked at the Greek word for church here, it's ecclesia. The Greek word ecclesia means the church, and ecclesia means it's an assembly or a congregation, it's a gathered body of Christian believers. The church, as we gather, this is the church. And Jesus loves his church because we are the bride of Christ. So six different times in these 11 verses, you're going to see the word church or ecclesia. It's actually where we get our theological word, the study of the church. Anybody know it? It's called ecclesiology. It comes from the Greek word ekklesia. It's the gathered body of believers united in Christ And worshiping our Lord. You see, this mystery doesn't point primarily to our individual personal relationships with Christ, but it points to our gathered corporate relationship with Christ as the bride of Christ. This term, ecclesia, was also used in AJ's sermon last week from Matthew 16, where he talked about, On this rock I will build my ecclesia. On this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. So what Paul wants us to see when we read this passage and what God wants us to see when we go to a wedding or when we contemplate the relationship between a husband and a wife is this exceedingly great and profound mystery. I'm talking about Christ and the church. So my goal for us this morning is that you'll never be able to sit through a wedding ceremony again without this reality on your mind, that you'll never be able to think about your relationship with your spouse without this deeper reality in mind, that you'll never be able to see the beauty displayed in a relationship between a couple that you know and their love and fondness and care for one another without you thinking intentionally that there's a picture here, and it's a picture of Christ and the church. We are the bride of Christ. So if you were around in the 90s, I know we have a young congregation, so not all of you were around in the mid-90s. But if you were around in the mid-90s, you were probably familiar with this, what they called a stereogram. You may not know it by its name, but you've seen one. It's a picture that looks like shapes and colors with no apparent image. And as you peered into this picture and looked deeper, I think you're supposed to look at it closely and then pull it away from your eyes. And a three-dimensional image all of a sudden appears in this two-dimensional canvas. Have you ever seen one? Maybe you had a book. Maybe you've seen it on a wall. It's called a stereogram. It's fascinating. And some people get really frustrated because they can't see it. Maybe you're one of those. Like, I hate those things because I can never see the picture. And the person that sees it immediately goes, there it is. Do you see it? And the person that can't get it, they're like, I don't see it. I don't see the image. I was looking at one on my computer screen this week, and all it looks like was green Pixels and shapes, and a kaleidoscope of shapes and pictures and colors, and no image. And then I looked, and all of a sudden, there it was. It was this eagle in a three dimensional picture flying through the sky. And I was like, there it is. That's what Paul wants to communicate to us. We can read this passage, we can hear it over and over, and we see it in somewhat of a two dimensional image. And what we're going to see this morning is a three-dimensional picture that pops out into our minds. And the funny thing is about those stereograms is once you see it, every time you go back and look at that picture, you see it immediately. It's like, oh, there's the eagle. Of course there's an eagle. And everybody, I don't see the eagle. Well, there's the eagle because I see it. And now every time you see this passage, I believe, you're going to see the three-dimensional image of what Christ is trying to communicate, that we, we are the bride of Christ. So with this exceedingly great picture in sight and this profound mystery in mind, let's take a look at the rest of the passage. We're gonna see our response to Jesus as our bridegroom and his amazing love for us, his bride. Verse 22 and 23. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body. And is himself its savior. Love that. As the bride of Christ, we're called to submit to Jesus. To surrender all that we are and all that we have to his authority and his lordship in our lives. But we must never forget the fact that our submission to Christ as our head is rooted in his character and his attributes that when we think of Christ and who he is and his unconditional love for us and his mercy and grace as it's poured out on us on a continual basis, that Christ is not only our savior but our servant, then it puts submission into perspective. It should be a joyful, willing, happy surrender rooted in the very nature of God as our savior and our Lord. See, Christ is the head of the church. Colossians 1.18, Paul again writing to the church at Colossae, and he puts this in a beautiful picture in Colossians 1.18, speaking of the supremacy of Christ, he says, he, Jesus, is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything, he might have the supremacy. In everything, he might be preeminent. This is Jesus, our bridegroom. We are to submit to him in joyful surrender as his bride. If you'll turn back just one page, you're in Ephesians 5 now, just turn back one page to Ephesians 1 and look at verses 22 and 23 together with me. Paul clarifies this idea of Christ being our head. He says, and he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Not only is Christ our head, but as you see at the end of that verse, and is himself its savior. The Greek word for savior here is soter. It's where we get our theological words, soteriology, which is the study of salvation. We've talked about ecclesia, the study of the church. And here is Jesus, our Savior, which is the study of salvation, soteriology. You see, Christ does not use his position and role as the head of the church to be a dictator and simply judge and tell us what to do and punish us for doing wrong. But Christ uses his role given by the Father as the head of the church to not only be our savior, but our servant. And we as the church are called to submit and surrender. Verse 24 gives greater clarity. It says this, Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Remember, this is a picture It's a prototype. It's a model describing our relationship with Christ. And here it says, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. You see, our definition of submission is cloudy only because our definition of headship is unclear. If we truly understand headship, then submission will not be a problem. When we understand that Jesus is not only our Savior, but our servant, that he loves us unconditionally, that he pours out his mercy and his grace upon us, that he lives to make intercession for us, that he has a wonderful plan for our life, and he lovingly wants to carry us in obedience to that plan, then surrendering to his will is a joy, not a burden. So church, what are we supposed to submit to Christ? Answer, everything. Everything, our hopes, our plans, our dreams, our desires, our aspirations, our talents, our time, our money, our relationships, our ministries, our mission, everything. Our leadership, our building, our worship, our parking lot, our children, everything. We are to submit to Christ to surrender to his lordship, to gladly lay on the altar as Abraham laid Isaac on the altar and say, it's yours, Lord. Do with it what you will. I surrender. One of my favorite verses in all of the New Testament is Acts 20, 24. And it says this, however, I consider my life worth nothing to me. If only I may finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me, the task of testifying to the gospel of God's grace. I consider my life worth nothing to me. We grow up singing the song. Many of you did in in churches growing up. I believe we've probably sung it here. We should probably sing it again. Where's Tim? Write this down, Tim. Uh, AJ's song from last sermon made it into this week. And so my hymn from this week better make it into next week's uh, (laughs) worship set. And that's All to Jesus I surrender, All to Him I freely give. I will ever love and trust him. In his presence daily live. And how does the chorus go? I surrender all. I surrender all. All to Jesus I surrender. I surrender all. Would the hymn not sound remarkably strange if we sang half to Jesus I surrender, half to him I freely give, I surrender one half, I surrender, no, it's, I surrender all, all to him I freely give. He is my Lord and my master, and I lay it down for him, knowing that he's a good king, he's a good Lord. He will take what I surrender, and he will use it for my good and his glory. I surrender all. In church, we can't surrender all corporately as a church, as a gathered body of believers, as the ecclesia of Christ, unless we're individually doing that on a personal level. I've got to get before the Lord and submit to his kingship in my life. And you've got to get to the Lord and surrender to his lordship in your life. And you know what happens when we come together as a gathered body of 400 surrendered people to Christ? Then we are a surrendered ecclesia. We are a surrendered church. Christ is our bridegroom. We are his bride. This is our role and our responsibility as the bride of Christ. But it's rooted in who Jesus is for us. And that's what the rest of the passage talks about. As we dive into the rest of the passage, if you're a note taker, we're gonna talk about four things that describe Jesus' love for us as the bride of Christ. That his love is sacrificial, that his love is a purifying love, that his love is a caring love, and his love is an unbreakable love. One more time, it's a sacrificial love, it's a purifying love, it's a caring love, and it's an unbreakable love. Verse 25. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Christ loves the church. He loves his bride. He gave himself up for you. I love the comment A.J. made last week in his sermon from Acts twenty twenty-eight. The church is the only thing God ever purchased, and this with his own blood. How valuable are you, church, that Jesus would die for you and give himself up on the cross for you. He did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. But made himself nothing. Taking the very nature of a servant, he became obedient to death, even death on a cross. You see, Jesus is in this relationship to give, not to receive. Oh, that our marriages would look like that. I come into this relationship to model my Savior and my Lord and my bridegroom to give and not to receive. And if your sole goal in your marriage was to give and your spouse's sole goal in the marriage was to give, you know what? Both of you will be provided for because your aim is to give. And this was the aim of our bridegroom, Jesus Christ. Mark 10 45 says, for even the son of man, even the son of man, even Jesus, the Lord, the King of kings and the Lord of lords did not come to be served. Sorry. (laughs) Sorry. Yes, I did say that right. Did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Why did Jesus come? Mark 10, 45 has the answer. He came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for you and for me. Christ loves his church. Christ died for his church. And it might raise the question in your mind as it did in mine as I'm studying Well, Steve, what does that mean for the parachurch? You know what the parachurch is? Organizations that come alongside the church? Well, in order to understand the role and the objective of the parachurch ministries that are awesome ministries, that are fantastic ministries that need to serve and uphold the body of Christ, but we first have to understand the word para. Para is a Greek prefix that means to come alongside and hold up. Do you know what the Greek word for Holy Spirit is? paraclete. It's the one who comes alongside in order to hold up and support. You would really need to understand this Greek prefix if you were a skydiver and you just jumped out of a plane (laughs) and you're plummeting at over 100 miles an hour to the ground to your impending death until the parachute opens and upholds you when you needed to be upheld so that you don't plummet to the earth. But it's the parachurch, not the church. The paralegal is somebody who comes alongside an attorney to help the attorney do his job or her job as one who comes alongside and assist. The parachurch is beautiful. The parachurch is lovely. The parachurch is important. I love Christian radio. I listen to Christian radio. I love Christian schools. My kids went to a Christian school. I love Christian organizations. I worked for one for many years, but Christ loves the church. And the parachurch in this illustration, in this beautiful picture, if the church is the bride, then guess who the parachurch is? Come on, follow the illustration. The bridesmaids. You got it. The bridesmaids are beautiful at a wedding. The bridesmaids serve a purpose at a wedding. The bridesmaids help the bride be where she's supposed to be and hold her flowers when they need to be held and get her to the right spot when she needs to get to the right spot. But never does a bridesmaid stand in the front next to the groom as the focal point of the wedding. That would be strange because that's the spot for the bride. Christ loves his bride. He loves the church and he gave himself up for her because the love of Christ is a sacrificial love. Verse 26, that he might sanctify her having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. Jesus' heart for you, church, is that he might sanctify you. The word sanctify means to make holy. That Jesus loves you so much, church, that he wants to make you holy. He wants to make you like him. He wants to present you to himself as a bride without blemish, without spot, without any wrinkle whatsoever. Church, would you agree that we need a little bit of sanctification? In your life personally, in our life corporately, We need Jesus to be in this role of purifying us, the bride of Christ, that we may stand before him in radiance. See, having judiciously made you right with God through his substitutionary death on the cross, Jesus, your husband, is now committed to sanctifying you and making you more and more like him. And how does he do do this? Well, if you look into the passage, he does this through his word through the washing, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the Word. Citadel Square, this is why every week, week in and week out, we take a deep dive into the Word of God. Because we believe it's the Word of God that penetrates to your dividing heart and soul, joints and marrow, and judges the thoughts and attitudes of your heart, as it says in Hebrews. We believe it's the Word of God that can get up to the hard places in your heart And bring light into dark places. We believe it's the word of God that can give you direction in how God wants you to live your life. We believe it's the word of God that's Jesus' primary tool in cleansing us as his bride. Getting us ready for the marriage that we sang about just a few moments ago. You see, Jesus not only saves, but Jesus sanctifies. Why? Look at verse 27. So that he might present the church to himself, interesting thought, in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. You see, when I read and studied this verse this week, it brought new understanding for me on why it is that the bride and the bridesmaids arrive to the wedding ceremony so early, It's like six hours, eight hours early. I have a chance to do the rehearsal and we're gathered together doing the rehearsal and and, uh, undoubtedly they start talking about the schedule for tomorrow, the wedding day. And like, what time are you guys gonna get here? And the brides and bridesmaids are like, we're gonna get here at, you know, the wedding's at five in the evening and they're gonna get here at like nine in the morning. I'm like, what in the world are you gonna do for that long? It's, we're we're gonna get ourselves ready without spot or wrinkle or any such thing. You take care of every spot, every wrinkle, every blemish. Your nails get done. Your hair gets done. The makeup gets on right. If it's not right, you do it over. You got plenty of time. You put on the dress. You iron it. If it's not ironed, you sit there. So you got to do it again. Don't worry. You got plenty of time. It's what do you guys do for six hours? What Jesus is doing for us as the bride of Christ is taking care of every spot, every wrinkle, every blemish. It's also funny to talk to the groomsmen. When are you guys showing up? I don't know, about 30 minutes ahead of time. <laughs> they just showed up, it's like, what's up, we're ready. It's like, did you even iron your suit? Nah, it don't matter, nobody's looking at us anyway. <laughs> They're all looking at the bride and the bridesmaid. And Jesus has committed, church, to your sanctification. And he loves you as his bride even, when, even though you're not lovable. That he takes you in all of your mess, in all of your brokenness, in all of your disobedience, and he says, I love you. And I'm gonna make you holy. Because there's gonna be a marriage in heaven, and you're gonna stand before Jesus face to face, and we're gonna stand there as a radiant bride. But it doesn't happen by our own efforts. 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11. I love this because it gives us a picture of who we are, who we were, and who we are. Just listen along with me. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do you know that, Citadel Square? That the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Daunting news, because guess what? You fall into that category. Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revelers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Paul goes on to say, and such were some of you. I don't know why he didn't say such were all of you. Definitely put myself in that category. And it's bad news to start with, but then there's an amazing three-letter word in Scripture that often appears in this moment of time, and it's but... But you were washed, past tense, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. The the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God, but you are no longer in that category if you know Jesus and if you've come to know him through repentance and faith. You have been washed and cleaned and justified, and Jesus is now sanctifying you as his holy bride. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Think about that reality. Not when you cleaned yourself up and got it all together. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus is getting us ready for himself. He loves his bride. He wants her wedding day to be absolutely perfect. As a bride spends hours and hours getting ready for her wedding day, Jesus is now getting you ready and me ready for that wedding day that John talks about in Revelation and we read about and sung about just a few moments ago. Ephesians 1, 1.4, one page to your left, Paul says to the church at Ephesus, for he chose us in him before the creation of the world. Why? Why did God choose you before the creation of the world? That you might be holy and blameless in his sight. What a remarkable reality for those of us who are in Christ. The love of Christ for his bride is not only a sacrificial love, it is a purifying love. Verse 28 through 30. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Church, how does Jesus love you? What does Jesus do for you? He nourishes and he cherishes. My hope for you when you come here each Sunday is that you feel nourished and cherished through the community of believers, through the worship and song, through the time in God's word that you would feel nourished and cherished by your bridegroom. That's his desire, that's his hope, that's his aim. Christ is in your corner and you need to know that this morning. Husbands and wives, maybe you've been in a similar situation where something really difficult was going to happen in your day that day. A work scenario, a relational scenario, something that you've dialogued with your wife over and you knew today's going to be difficult. And your wife greets you at the door before you head out to that difficult situation. And maybe you've heard the words of something like this No matter what happens today, honey, I want you to know that I love you, I'm with you, and I have your back. And nothing's going to change that. Man, if you hear that walking out of the day for a difficult day, you have a spring in your step. You have a renewed confidence and assurance. Because you know, no matter what happens out there, I've got somebody that loves me unconditionally. And is going to be waiting for me when I get home. Jesus is your bridegroom. He loves you. He cherishes you. He nourishes you. And he's in your corner. The love of Christ is not only a sacrificial love. The love of Christ is not only a purifying love, but the love of Christ is a caring love. And some of us just need to know this morning that Jesus cares for you. He cares for you. He enjoys you. He wants to spend time with you. He's not just out to get you when you do wrong, but he loves you with a caring, nourishing, cherishing kind of love. Verse 31. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. You see, we as the church must leave behind every other priority and hold fast to Christ. This connects back to our happy and joyful surrender and submission to him. And isn't it interesting? The relationship between Christ and the church is so intimate, so deep, so all-consuming, so joyful that it is compared here to the physical union of a husband and a wife. It's a picture. It's a shadow. It's a foretaste of what's to come. Well, can I speak to those of you who were married for just a minute? For those of you who were married, was... Was there a fair amount of expectation as you look forward to the one flesh reality after your wedding ceremony? Don't worry, we won't go into detail. It is Family Sunday. But did you maybe give it just a little thought in the days leading up to your wedding? What is your expectation and longing for the day you will meet Jesus face to face? That expectation is supposed to be a picture of a greater expectation for a greater reality that's a mega mystery. It's exceedingly great. I talked about it a minute ago, but um, I love officiating weddings because I get to stand next to the groom as the bride is coming into the ceremony. The bride adorned in her white dress, which is symbolic of purity, purity, and the righteousness that god has given us in christ and the groom stands down here just totally fixated on the bride it's it's i love it like people in the audience can't figure out do we want to look at the bride or do we want to look at the groom and you're kind of torn aren't you because you want to see the bride and all her radiance and yet you want to see the reaction of the groom and the groom is locked in man he's like i'm looking at her i know she's escorted by somebody i don't care who that is i'm looking at the bride and a bomb could go off in the lot next door, and he would never know it because he's fixated on his bride as she enters. And we will enter his presence, not with a purity or a righteousness of our own, but we will be clothed in the righteousness of Christ. And God's gaze will be fixated on us as we enter because he has made us ready. And not only has he made us ready, but we have a part in the process. Back to Revelation 19.7. You thought we were gonna get out of Revelation and here we are back in it. Revelation 19.7 says, let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory for the marriage of the lamb has come and the bride has made herself ready. My challenge for us as the church, as the bride, is that our preparation would be matched with our expectation. We have great expectation of this day when we will see Jesus face to face, and I want to challenge us that we will be equally committed to the preparation for that day. A couple years ago, I was asked to officiate a wedding. Some family friends had a son who was a military guy in the army, and uh, he was marrying this uh, Thai lady he met a lady overseas and she was from Thailand and and uh through some interaction with my mother this family found out that oh not only was I a pastor but I happened to be able to speak the Thai language so they thought oh this is great because the family's flying into Bangkok the family of the bride and not only do we get a guy that can officiate because he can do that in the uh, requirements of the state but this guy happens to be able to speak Thai so they invited me to come and officiate their wedding so we show up at the venue where the wedding was being set up and um and Marie was with me, and we realized pretty quickly that not a whole lot of preparation had gone in to uh, this ceremony. And we, we started to ask some questions. Well, who's going to enter first, and where's, who's going to escort the mothers down? And, and everybody just looked at us like, I, I don't know. And... Uh, Uh, thankfully, Marie went into overdrive and and, uh, started being the day of coordinator um, just because we had to. Like, I had to to officiate. She had to be the day of coordinator, and the groomsmen didn't know where to stand, and the bridesmaids didn't know when they were to go in, and the mothers didn't know what side to sit on, and nobody was prepared. Church, we're going to go to a wedding, and it's going to be our wedding. John points to it at the end of time, and he says, For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and the bride has made herself ready. May that picture not be our picture, but may our picture be one of being prepared and ready for the wedding day. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. And what God has joined together, let no man separate, because this is a symbol of God's unbreakable love. God's love for us in Christ is sacrificial. God's love for us in Christ is purifying. God's love for us in Christ is caring. And God's love for us in Christ is unbreakable and eternal. And a much bigger and better picture than our relationship with our spouse. This, prof- this mystery is profound. And I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. This morning we've looked at a two-dimensional passage and we've seen a three-dimensional picture that has popped out and it's the analogy. It's the metaphor. It's the picture of us being the bride and Christ being our our bridegroom. So I was in a conversation this week with a couple that's engaged in our church and going to get married. And, and we, we talked a little bit about this obscure passage in Matthew 22. And it's a little bit hard to understand, but Jesus says that the resurrection, people will neither marry nor be given in marriage. And I've always struggled a little bit with this passage because I can't imagine after 30 years of marriage, not being together with my bride. And if we understand that what we experience now in our relationships, both at a wedding ceremony and our relationship with our spouses, it's a shadow, it's a foretaste, it's a picture, but it's pointing to a greater reality than we can understand Jesus' teaching here. It would be like us planning a trip to Disney World and our travel agent sends us a couple brochures in the mail and our family gets so excited we're going to Disney World and we open the mail and on the front of the first brochure is a picture of the castle at the Magic Kingdom And they have it lit just right, and it's a beautiful picture. And so you see it, and you're like, we're going to be there. Like, we're going to be in front of the castle, and we're going to see Mickey Mouse, and maybe we'll even see Cinderella. And you start to build this excitement and this fun, and your kids get excited about it, and you're making the journey down to Orlando, and they ask 1,500 times, are we there yet? Are we there yet? Are we going to see Mickey Mouse? What about Tinkerbell? This is going to be awesome. And then the night comes. You're there, you're worn out from being at the park all day, exhausted, kids are crying, but then you're standing in front of that very castle. You're standing in front of that very castle and it's lit perfectly because Disney does everything perfect and Cinderella comes riding up on the carriage and Tinkerbell, she comes down from the top of the castle on some wire, I don't know how that happens, and fireworks are going off in the back of the castle and, and you're sitting there and it's like, it's magical. Now, wouldn't that be strange if you said, hey, honey, do you have that brochure? Because I wanted to look back at that picture like, you're not looking at the brochure anymore. That was simply a picture of a greater reality that now you're experiencing. And I think maybe in a little way, we're going to be so enamored with our bridegroom and the look on his face and the fact that he's cleansed us and made us holy. Never again to sin. Never again to struggle with temptation. Never again to have disunity in the body of Christ. Perfect for all eternity. Christ loves his church. We are the bride of Christ. And I want to leave you with one challenge. Because if we are one with Christ, then we will grow to love the things that he Loves, And what we've seen here this morning is that Christ loves his church with a sacrificial love, a purifying love, a caring love, and an unbreakable love. My question as we close this morning is how do you love the church? Let's pray. Father, this morning we worship albeit as a shadow, but looking forward to the day when we will have unhindered worship of our King and our God. Father, we thank you for your mercy and your grace that has been poured out on us. That God, we are your bride. Thank you for that reminder this morning. Help it to shape the way that we love you, and help it to influence the way that we love your church. We give you glory and honor and praise as we continue to worship. In Jesus' name, amen.